Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer one cut at a time. So this is a the other live episode that I recorded at Latitude Festival a couple of weeks ago. And I just need to be completely upfront with you right now. I wasn't sure whether to upload this because I knew at the time, and the reason that it didn't go up last week, uh, that the I, I took my recorder and the tech set it up and they said it's peaking we've put the levels down blah 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 blah. anyway the sound quality is atrocious um it's quite distorted all the way through and there's a couple of places where you it's difficult to even make out what I'm saying so I had a sort of think about it and then I listened to some of it and once you're past the like shout I do at the beginning which is very distorted uh it's still clipping and peaking and not at the le- not at this kind of like you don't you're not getting the fruity sonorous rich tones that you get from these intros you know when i'm in a room on my own when i can move in and do that kind of close mic work that you get on radio 4 when they're doing an epistolary play about a depressed lighthouse keeper and he's uh, you know in some some you know middle ranking thesp is uh, reading out uh, a letter to his uh, betrothed in uh, with a rolling, lilting Welsh tones. You, you're not going to get that uh, on today's episode. And some of you may conclude, I cannot be asked with this and, and give up. And that's absolutely fine. I just, there's sort of two factors that played into this. One was I just thought, you know, I, I actually did a couple of um, listeners first pages uh, as 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 the um show went on and i thought ah that's quite that's quite good that's quite useful you might be interested in that uh secondly i think unless look i i i realize that like, i suppose the problem with this one is it's like less accessible if you're um hearing if you have some hearing issues then it may be that this episode uh, isn't as accessible and and um i'm sorry for that um but I think for the most part, like once you start listening, you sort of don't notice the distortion and it's no, it's not particularly worse than the Skype conversations I have with other people. Um, I'm not planning to make a habit of having shit sound on my episodes, um, but at the same time, I'm just balls deep in work at the moment and I thought I could <laughs> just flake... Um, but I, I've just, I'm just in this kind of crazy, like, level of, like, research. I'm looking at this new book proposal at the moment that I'm working on, and it's sort of eating up my time and my mind. So it's not that I can't be asked. It's just, I had this in the hopper, and I thought, actually, you know, I, I'm going to come in later with some other interviews. I've got some of them lined up. I've got, you know, I want to just have a chat with you as well, like I'm doing now. So all of that can come. But I just thought when I I wasn't going to upload it and then I listened back to it and I thought, actually, I'm happy putting this out and then you can make up your own mind. I, I totally understand if you do get a few uh, a few minutes in and go, I, I just cannot be chewed with this nonsense, Tim Clare. That's fine. Um, yeah, you know, I, I'm sure that there is uh, some sort of unwritten uh, podcast uh, law that you, everything you put out should be... Uh, should be incredible. If this is your first, I wouldn't make this your first episode. If you're just joining me and this is your first time ever listening to Death of a Thousand Cuts, 
what I suggest is that you go and listen to one of the other episodes first. This is definitely um, sort of more along the kind of bonus episode thing. The other thing I'll say about this one is I don't know what was going on with me that I thought, because I'm so used to just switching my mic on and having a chat with you, I forgot it's a bit difficult when you, a bit different, when you step out into a tent in front of a few hundred people at a festival, some of whom who don't know you, right? And I didn't have any plan. <laughs> what would I do? <laughs> what's up? What's up with me? I they put they said I had a ninety minute slot and I just made it. I just thought oh, it didn't even occur to. I was just like, oh, I'll wing it. I'll just start recording and I'll wing it. So if I sound a little bit. <laughs> without a plan I just tried to... <laughs> sorry I don't know why I just tried to ad lib for 90 minutes this is my life they paid me good money for this they gave me the opening slot in the literature tent and I just walked out and started talking this is my actual life what is wrong with me what is wrong with you Tim Clare what a naughty boy <laughs> I told my wife afterwards and said I didn't have a plan. She said, what? What's wrong with you? I know. I know I'm now. Just sometimes I'm busy. I look after my daughter. You know what it's like if any of you are parents. You know what it's like, right? You kind of put stuff off. And so it's just like, I won't think about the festival until now. I'll figure it out. <laughs> this is the problem, right? I mentioned at the beginning on... on you hear me mention my anxiety disorder, which is purely a gambit to try and manipulate people into going easy on me, right? But it's true, like, having an anxiety disorder, I'm, I'm so anxious all the time that actually I don't have fear as, like, a useful metric <laughs> for motivation because it's just there all the time. I'm scared of everything, right? So it's not actually particularly that much scarier for me to, say, jump off a high diving board or do sort of different things or go out in front of a few hundred people, not only sort of to talk about adverbs but without any plan whatsoever making it up moment by moment right the the thing is normally most people would have a spike of fear if you hadn't done any prep and it was less than 24 hours before and you were going to bed you'd be going shit i haven't prepared i need to cram for this but i don't i mean i have the fear but it's i've always got the fear so it i there's no signal so i just go yeah all right i'll do it Ugh. Well, so you can hear the results. Anyway, um, I hope you enjoy this. And, and for those of you who stick through it, you know, I do a couple of first pages. I actually really enjoyed that bit. You know, you'll be able to hear the audience in the background. They were very nice. I, uh, I, I, I spotted early on, which really um, lifted my heart, that two previous guests of the podcast, uh, namely Hayley Webster and Temi O, were in the audience cheering me on so it's really love that genuinely was like i was like oh my gosh i feel like um i i i didn't want to embarrass them by by doing a shout out to them but it was lovely it was lovely to see them and um i hadn't met temi before so it was really exciting um i'll put a link to her episode in the show notes where i chat to her about her 
science fiction novel, her debut, uh, Do You Dream of Terror 2. It's a really great chat. I really recommend it. I loved talking to her and I think she's a wicked uh, SF author who has some great things to say about research, actually. Um, A real exemplar of how you can do your research, even if your research, you know, your book involves going into space. There are ways around that if you want to have some lived experience. Uh, Anyway, I won't talk anymore. Oh, look, and my novels, The Honours and The Ice House are out. They're there. You folks have been, people have been reading them. They've been reviewing them. I don't know what's happened, but there's been this sudden flurry of people reading The Honours. Oh, I, I know because it's been 2.39 on Kindle, right? But a bunch of people have been reading The Honours and reviewing it and letting me know they've been enjoying it. So that's been really thrilling. I feel up a beat about my writing at the moment, right? And then a bunch of people have been reading The Ice House and saying lovely things about that and leaving reviews here and there and just saying really thoroughly nice things. So, you know, I'm a full-time writer. The way I keep a roof on my head is by uh, selling lies to people like you. So if you would like to read some of those lies and have an adventure, not quite like anything you've read before, then um, I'll put links, but The Ice House and The Honours, their books one and two, sort of inverse respectively of The Honours sequence. Um don't have to read them in that order although that's would be my sort of suggested reading order i think you'll i think you'll either really dig them or it'll just be a new experience for you you won't be quite sure what you read but you'll have it won't be something you've read before that's my sort of pitch because i don't really pitch uh, because i'm not very good at it um and if you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me keep the lights on then of course Aside from uh, buying my books, I've got a little coffee page. That's ko-fi.com forward slash Tim Clare, where you can drop me a few beans to help me with things like my uh, SoundCloud hosting costs and my website hosting costs. That is it. And thank you to all of you who've been doing that because people do do that. And I'm still as sort of flabbergasted. uh, And I, I say that without hyperbole, genuinely surprised and just delighted and grateful that, um, well, there's a community of us who are, uh, you know, out here writing together, and I'm thank you so much for supporting the show. I hope you have a fantastic week of week of writing. Um, and here from uh, mid July at the Latitude Festival in Suffolk is me doing the biggest ever uh, live episode of Death of a Thousand Cuts a podcast about editing, would you believe, at a music festival. Claire, ladies and gentlemen! Hello, everyone. So before I sort of start properly... Oh, my gosh, like, coming up those stairs, I've got a complete head rush. Um... I'm just going to sort of get us, I realise it's a bit early in the morning for kind of, <laughs> for kind of like adrenaline pumping kind of levels of applause. And uh, I really liked Daniel's kind of like, him kind of like manfully trying to go, does anyone here write? And then there was kind of like tepid response. I mean, does anyone, does anyone, I've used a pen. That's good enough. Brilliant. You're going to love this. Literally anyone. 
Um, so um, I do a podcast called Death of a Thousand Cuts, and I'm just about to start it live. This is just me uh, warming up because I've got an anxiety disorder, so I'm just appearing on stage now, floating in this kind of like ambient wave of nerds as I, uh, of nerves as I realize, you're not nerds, as I realize that I'm now live and talking to you. And we're going to do a show about writing. I promise that there's going to be, although it's going to have workshop elements, that there's going to be nothing in it that's going to make you uh, uh, feel so stressed out with audience participation that you lose the will to live. But um, I will hopefully make it fun. Is that okay with you? Can I ask, would it be possible for everyone in the audience to maybe, if, it, if I could ask you to sort of shuffle forward just a tiny bit, like, you can give me like a meter or two, that would be so lovely. Thank you so much, I really appreciate it. It just feels like, now you're, uh, that's lovely. I'm not, I'm not gonna abuse it by sort of um, picking you out and start like roasting people in the audience. This is a safe space for us to talk about writing and uh, awesome, thank you very much. And then maybe as other people pass, they might like to drop in. Okay, so let's start. Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer, one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, and this is a show and podcast about writing for writers, for readers, and for anyone, any of you who have a morbid fascination with how the story sausage is made. On this show, we have three central planks to our writing manifesto. One, to help people write more. Two, to help you write better, and three, to make you a little bit happier, if not a lot happier, as you do it. To that end, I sometimes talk to other authors. I also look at people's front pages of their novels and short stories, and I talk a little bit about the process of writing itself and look at ways that we can make it better, less stressful, and we can make our stories brilliant and awesome and amazing. I'm an author myself. Can I get a show of hands? I understand that this is a sensitive question that may make some people feel embarrassed, but since I was backstage and I didn't see, how many people here are either writers or do a bit of writing for fun or would like to be writers? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Don't worry, awesome. Like, I didn't mean to like go. I, I saw some people looking at me nervously who didn't put their hands up. Like I was like going, "This isn't for you. This is our space. This is for writers now. Stop spying on us." It's wonderful that you want. Well, we all love stories, right? Everybody in the world, I think. So, well, let me let me start by telling you the story that is the reason that I'm here. Um, so there was a, if you, uh, it's about a teenage girl, she's about 15 at the time, and she had to tell a story, and she was standing at the edge of a bridge, the year was 1945, and um, she'd just walked through the bombed out ruins of Dresden, occasionally hitching lift on tram cars, she, that was particularly difficult for her because she was, disabled, she walked with crutches, she just insisted that she be cut out of a full body cast so she could leave the hospital which the nuns who had been looking after her had abandoned in Germany at the end of the Second World War. And she found herself at one end of a bridge with a 
Russian soldier pointing a, a Moisin Nagant rifle at her head and saying that she couldn't pass. And so this teenage girl, faced with someone pointing a gun at her, did what I think we all would do in that situation, which was that she started telling a story, right? She started telling him that she had been in the hospital during uh, most of the end part of the war, that she'd been born disabled, that her teachers had uh, made fun of her for her disabilities and used to, her teacher used to do an impression of her as she walked through, as he walked through the classroom. And she told him that she was trying to get home to her family who were somewhere on the other side of Germany. And because train lines were bombed out, because she didn't have a car, she was walking. And he started crying. And tears welled up in his eyes when she said the word uh, Mama, which in German is the same as it is in Russian, is the same as it is in English. She's talking about her mother. And he said to her that he hadn't seen his own family for years. And so the way I was told this story was that at this point, he suggested to her that she pretends she'd come from the other side of the bridge and he would shout at her and point his gun at her as if protecting the bridge but then she could go the other way but um recently i found out that that wasn't true and actually it was her idea and when he started crying she said well you know you could just pretend that i came from the other side of the bridge and it will look like you're doing your job and so he did and he pointed the rifle at her and he shouted get back you can't cross and she walked across the bridge and that girl was uh, my grandmother. And the reason that I'm here today and I'm able to talk to you about that is because in a moment, <laughs> having a gun pointed at her head, she was able to tell a story and tell it with such power and such skill and choose her audience that she made an enemy an ideological, I mean, she left out parts of her story where she'd been like a secretary for the uh, Gestapo. I think she understood that that maybe wouldn't go down quite as well. And in our family, we tend to like leave those bits out that my grandma was a member of the Hitler Youth and all that kind of stuff is like, well, you know, we, it was a tricky time. Um, but like she, but she managed to tell a story that made somebody who was her enemy realize that they had something in common and moved him so much that he put down his weapon and let her get home. And I think whatever you think of stories, you know, sometimes we think of them as being frivolous. Sometimes I always wanted to be a writer and maybe part of me knew that my whole reason for being was because of somebody's story. But recently on the podcast, I've been doing, in case you haven't listened to my podcast, it's called Death of a Thousand Cuts. I sometimes chat to other authors. Sometimes I get people who listen to the podcast to send in the first pages of their short stories and novels, which we're going to be getting onto in a little bit, because some people who may well be in the audience right now have sent me their work, and I'm going to be, we're going to be going through it and having a look at the first pages of their novels and looking at ways that they can make it better. But also, um, I'm very kind of aware that stories have 
an incredible power. And of course, like as an author, you always want to kind of like play that up slightly. But I think they do. They really do. And at this point in history, right, where we've got this, where we seem to face so many problems, I find that kind of quite, I find that quite, well, what was happening? So I've been speaking on the podcast to a lot of neuroscientists because like being a man who's uncomfortable with feelings, right? Who like anything to do with kind of like uh, literary theory and that kind of thing makes me feel a bit uncomfortable when we're talking about like themes and stuff. I'm like, oh no, no, I want nuts and bolts. I want science because that's proper, that's real, right? Um, I've been speaking to a lot of scientists on the show and neuroscientists talking about what happens in the brain when we tell stories. And one of the things I found from this uh, neuroscientist called Paul J. Zak who is interested in a specific neurotransmitter called, uh, it's called oxytocin. I don't know, some of you may have heard of it. It's, for ages it was oxytocin, so it was thought to be, the main thing it did was when you give birth, if you do some skin to skin and your brain releases oxytocin and it stimulates milk coming down into the breast so you can feed your baby. It's like oxytocin was always like the bonding neurotransmitter. It's the reason when you see a baby, part of you <laughs> feels like you've been like hypnotized. When you go, uh, even if you haven't got ovaries, you feel your ovaries ache and then explode inside you as you look at this little baby and go, I want to protect you, I want to look after you. That's oxytocin flooding through your system. And Paul J. Zak, this uh, neuroscientist, had the weird, he said he was on a plane and he was watching, I think it was like something like, uh, it, 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 it was something like, uh, 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 a million dollar baby or something or is it called Solid Gold Baby or something that movie with that boxing movie and he started crying at the end and he was like what's why am I crying because I know I know this is a bunch of famous actors lying at me on the screen why am I in floods of tears as a neuroscientist he discovered you can just put some electrodes on people's heads and watch it, what's happening. And the amazing thing that I find at the moment is, according to modern neuroscience, we can't distinguish between somebody experiencing a memory of something sad or exciting or moving and someone reading about that same experience in a fictionalized book. The brain is not wired to distinguish between fact and fiction, and so he took it a stage further, right? You know, like when movies come out, and before they come out, they show them to test audiences to see, does the ending work? Are people moved by this? Do people like it? Well, um, Hollywood are now taking this a stage further because they've discovered when people, the way that they find that out is the audience fill in a little survey at the end, and they go, did you enjoy it? Did you like the ending? And what they discovered is people lie, or they're not very good at talking. So, for example, he, um, they, he was, they were doing a movie where, I won't say which of the movies it is, but it was like a cute movie about a dog, and the dog dies at the end. And they wanted to check with the audience, is that kind of ending with the dog dying, is that a good ending? Do you like it? And of course, nobody would be so heartless as to go, yeah, it's great that the dog dies. So all the feedback was like, no, the dog should live. It's, love, it's horrible, we want the dog to live. So what they've started doing, and what he did, is taking blood samples of people. This is the next level in audience feedback, up before and after watching a movie, and measuring the oxytocin levels 
in their blood. Now, oxytocin is a really, really difficult neurotransmitter when you're looking at stories to capture. It um, is destroyed on exposure to air in about three minutes. So believe you me, like this involves taking blood samples immediately. Sometimes they have to be stored in like liquid nitrogen. So there's like this big kind of like mad scientist lab with like smoke coming out of it where they're storing like blood in ice before and after someone's watching a puppy movie. And what they discovered is that what people say they want in a film and what they actually want the kind of thing that's likely to make them talk about it, the kind of thing that's likely to make them think about the story afterwards, the kind of thing that's likely to make them uh, make fan art of it and share it on social media are quite different. And that a lot of the, peop the people who said they wanted the dog to live actually showed this massive spike in oxytocin, the, the love neurotransmitter, right? The, this, this cell that comes into our brains and makes us more trusting, more loving, makes us feel all floppy. And they found that about 20% of the population are um, what they call neurological super responders. And the movie industry is now mobilizing to basically, when they make movies, instead of doing test screenings where they ask people questions, now doing test screenings where they take blood samples from people and look for the 20% of neurological super responders. And if you can pitch your movie to them to make them produce a lot of oxytocin, it's gonna be a hit. That is like the latest science of, that Hollywood are using. I find it slightly scary. I do note that this neuro, neuroscientist that I spoke to has had a massive grant from like the defense industry because they're realizing now they've done some studies. So let me take you back to that. Um, my grandma standing on the bridge, right? She was standing on the bridge talking to this soldier. How does this theory of oxytocin release uh, relate to the reason I'm here today? Well, the two things that they found a story needs to engage someone and make them think about it, pay attention and then think about it afterwards, are a release of oxytocin that makes you bond with the characters. It's a bonding thing. It makes us bond with our children. It makes us bond with our communities as well. And the other thing you need before that, because you've got to be paying attention, right? is something called cortisol. I don't know if any of you have know about cortisol, it's like the stress hormone. So if I start telling a story and I go, um, so I was driving down uh, a lonely road at night um, when the car engine cut out, uh, and there was like big hedges on either side, and I went to open the door, when suddenly there was this bang on the back of the window. So that, is starting to stimulate in people cortisol, like a stress hormone. There's like some threat, and that makes us pay attention. So often, what you need at the beginning is that gun pointing at the head, right? You need something that makes the reader go, oh, I need to pay attention to this, right? Something about it that makes us feel a little bit, not too much, but a little bit stressed, a little bit of arousal. And then after that, you can start de developing the oxytocin, which makes people engage with the story. So for her, the oxytocin release was when she started talking, when she started talking about her family, when she started talking about getting back to see her mother, who she hadn't seen. And that started stimulating oxytocin release. This neurologist that I spoke to, actually, this neuroscientist, said they've done studies where you can hear this story online. It's actually it's a quite an upsetting story, but they made a two-minute video about a dad. It's a true story about a dad and he's got a two-year-old son and it's the dad talking about how 
He loves his son. I've got a two-year-old daughter, so it's particularly difficult for me to watch. Um, he loves his son, um, but his son's got a terminal illness, and his son doesn't know that he's terminally ill. And the dad knows that the son's going to be dead. His two-year-old's going to be dead in a, a few months. And his dilemma is he, the kid is a two-year-old, right, and wants to play and run around. And the dad wants to give him that. But at the same time, the dad feels every time he's playing with him, another piece of his heart is going to his son, and he's bonding with him. And he's scared because he knows the more he plays with him and the more he spends this time with his son, the harder it's going to be when his son dies. And he talks about the guilt he feels at part of him not wanting to bond with his own son because he knows they've only got a matter of weeks left. And they'd sh so they'd show this true story, this two-minute film, right? And it produces cortisol. And then when they took blood samples, it produces this rush of oxytocin as the people watching it empathize with this true story, right? And then afterwards, all the participants in the study were going to be given $20, right? They were going to be given $20 for, as a thank you for participating. And there was a little button that said, if you want, you can uh, donate a portion of this $20 to charity if you'd rather not have it. When they were shown this video that released loads of oxytocin, um, people were 90% more likely to give the money to charity or a large proportion of it than when they were, even though the charity was nothing to do with what they'd actually seen, than if they were shown just a video that was about, like, here's how to clean your teeth safely, right? And this is why, like, the defense industry are interested in stories that release oxytocin, because people are more trusting. When we release oxytocin, we're more trusting. We're more likely to give a stranger money. They've done studies where there's two participants at the end of a sort of computer um, terminals, and they're asked, do you want to give this stranger some money? They might give you some back. They might not. You don't know. People are much more likely to give the money when they've had this massive release of oxytocin. Um, people are much more likely to uh, trust people. When you, I'll give you another way you can release oxytocin. Um, hugs. Eight hugs a day, apparently, is the threshold for having a release of oxytocin that protects you against you're much more likely to, you, you're, um, you're much more likely to, you're more resistant to infection. So why am I telling you all of this? Well, because I think a lot of the time we just assume stories are this thing that appear out of nowhere, or they're like a kind of like piece of moon rock that shoots down and thumps on the ground and we discover, but they're not actually. They're things that have a fundamental effect on how humans relate to each other. There's a reason why we tell stories, and, not all, and there's a reason why not all stories are like non-fiction information about, say, where to find food, or like how to fight a bear. I mean, that is quite like a cool story, right, how to wrestle a bear, but like there's a real, why do we find it, why do we care about watching stories about, say, fictional characters going through hell and then maybe being all right at the end. Why would that be something that humans are addicted to? Why would that be something that humans will not only do and put themselves through, but you know, there's a whole you know, bookshop around that corner that is predicated on the basis that you will pay someone money for arranging letters in a way that make you go, oh no, <laughs> I'm really sad. I'm really worried about a thing that's not happening. Oh no, oh gosh, I feel stressed. I feel angry. I feel really annoyed at this person who doesn't exist. 
why would you pay someone for that? Why would you give up time that you could be spending with friends and family, that you could be spending eating or kissing people or out in the sunshine? Why would you pay someone for the privilege of having them make you feel bad? And the answer is because there's something deep inside us that hears those stories of suffering and produces oxytocin. And that oxytocin effect of giving more to charity, trusting people more, feeling more love, feeling more like you uh, a safer community around you, those effects last for about 48 hours after the oxytocin comes down into us. So basically, when we read a tragedy, when we read a book about somebody suffering, when we read a book about anyone where we bond with a character in it, where we care about them, actually, the person who then goes out into the world after that is, from a strictly neuroscientific point of view, a better person. They're a more loving person. When we read about a tragedy, what actually happens is our body goes, no! And we get this shot of oxytocin going through us. And then we think, oh, but I exist in the real world, and I'm full of love, and I'm full of a... More, I'm more likely to give to charity. And actually, when we read sad stories, they make us kinder, better, more loving, and yes, more huggy human beings. And I think that's like pretty profound, right? That we've got that power as storytellers, and we've got that power as human beings to tell stories that mess with people's brains, that make them release the same drugs that you would get if you took a couple of ecstasy pills, basically, as well as, the, uh, as well as that big flush of oxytocin, you'll have serotonin, you might, have, you might even have a little bit of adrenaline kind of pumping through you if it's a very exciting scene. You'll have all these things flowing through you, and you get to have them, and they make you a nicer person. I'm not saying you're not nice people already. I'm getting a few looks from people as if to suggest, what do you mean? What do you mean it'll make you a nicer person? And also, I realize I'm not an entirely credible advocate for this because I'm a storyteller myself with my books in the bookshop, right? So when I come up here and I go, hey, you know, you know who the most noble, wonderful, world-changing ch people are? Yeah, that's right. The authors, of which I'm one. You're all bad people. You wouldn't give money to charity or hug people unless you read one of my sad stories. Of course not. That's just one thing that stories do. Another thing that they do, of course, is that human beings are, we are pattern-creating and pattern-completing machines. So it's not always completely altruistic, right? I'll give you an example. Uh, here's, an, here's an imaginary start to a story. On Monday, I found a pair of Wellington boots on the front doormat. On Tuesday, there was a scuba mask. Now, <laughs> that was just something I made up, right? That's not, like there's no narrative, there's no characters. It's nonsense, right? But you may have felt just the tiniest little pull in your head of wondering two things. One, your brain probably tried to make a connection between the wellies and the scuba mask. Like, did you like, did some people find yourself extrapolating a character that might, or some, something in common with those two things? Secondly, you might have found yourself wondering, what will be on the doorstep on Wednesday? 
Like, what nonsense? <laughs> you know there's not a doorstep, right? You know that I was given that as an example, and yet our brains cannot help but try and form patterns from incomplete sets. They've actually shown, they've done studies. There's a fantastic book by a writer called Will Storr called The um, Science of Storytelling that I really recommend where he talks about studies they've done where they get people to uncover part, little squares uh, it will, like, the, the, the study will say, like, uncover four squares by touching them on the touch screen. And in one group, every time you uncover a square, there's a tiny wee picture of, like, a little cute animal behind it. And in the other group, you just get part of a larger picture of a cute animal. And they found in the second group, where you're uncovering part of an animal, people would, they'd uncover four, and then they'd un uncover an average of nine extra squares as they went, Oh, I just want to see what animal it is, right? We can't, as human beings, really escape this addiction for finding out what the end part of an incomplete set is. And the uh, neurotransmitter that's being fired in that is dopamine. It's this little reward center of the brain that says, what? What's going on here? And I, I, I encourage you this weekend, if you're like reading a book or you're hearing any author um, read from their stories, Think about those first couple of lines where something is introduced and something in your brain goes and, and starts reading ahead. In fact, like, I might as well use this as an opportunity uh, now before we jump into some first pages that people have given me. Um, I might as well just read the first page of uh, my novel just to see if I can put my money where my mouth is. And I've got actually, now I'm saying this, I've got no idea whether I do any of these things. I've got no idea whether this is going to produce oxytocin in you. I've got no idea whether it's going to kick off the stress hormone. I've got no idea whether you're going to get a dopamine hit from incomplete sets. So you, you may be watching me fail live on stage as I discover that I don't do these things. Right. So um, this is my novel, um, The Honours. It's uh, set in Norfolk in 1935, which I realise doesn't sound like the most compelling sell for an exciting adventure story. That's literally what they put on the back uh, of the uh, book at the beginning of the kind of blurb was Norfolk, 1935, which is um, it's like the most disappointing Star Wars title crawl ever. But I, I promise you, it is an exciting yarn. So here's the opening page. And I'm only doing this to sort of put myself on the line before I read out some of your first pages, um, because otherwise it's a bit unfair if I just feel like I'm roasting other people, and I won't be roasting them um, without actually putting my money where my earth is. So this is the first page of the book. The girl with the gun crouched waiting. The dark shape hung over the belt of poplars, then banked, swooping out across the salt marsh. It was coming nearer. She braced a knee against the wet wall of the trench. The monster pumped its black wings, ragged, impossible. Curls of samphire crunched beneath her elbow as she brought the gun to her cheek. The wind lifted old book smells off the mudflats. Kidney-shaped pools shone copper and gold. She mouthed the old lesson like a spell, falling into Mr. Garforth's quiet, steady rhythm. To kill a bird, I must first ascertain its speed and trajectory. To do this, I follow it with the muzzle of the shotgun. She tilted the barrels up and began tracking a spot a yard behind her target. She could hear the thing panting. 
When I have ascertained its speed and trajectory, I bring the gun past smoothly. Any longer and it would see her. Her index finger twitched over the two triggers, dithering between full and half choke. She held her breath and brought the gun up too fast, stopped, waited, let the muzzle fall back in behind her target. She counted to three, tried again. This time, she swung the gun in one clean movement. If I miss the bird, if I miss, I will miss it in front. She continued past what instinct told her was the sweet spot. The gun kicked. A flock of Brent geese took off in a ripping blast, their voices like starter motors. Dark bodies and white undertails confetted the air. Delphine lowered the gun. She thumbed the locking lever and broke the barrel. The breech coughed a spent cartridge into the soft mud at her feet. She pressed her heel on the empty case until it sank. She reloaded. The sky was red and empty. She hauled herself out of the trench. On the edge of a small crescent pool lay a smashed umbrella. As she got closer, it resolved into knuckled wings, cola black fur, a sharp oval face like a weasel's. The creature was about three feet tall, its huge shot-shredded wings veined and translucent like the membranes of a leaf. She prodded it with the shotgun. The clump of sedge at its cheek shivered. She pressed the gun to its ribs and nudged it into the pool. Its huge wings settled across the surface. It floated. In the light of the setting sun, its fur blazed silver. She poked it in the belly. Cloudy water puddled through the holes in its wings. The puddles began joining up and, bit by bit, the creature sank. Its splayed ears, its closed eyes, the bright ring winking on its clenched finger. Delphine gazed into the face of death and did not feel afraid. Maybe it was the after-effects of the tranquilizer. Maybe it was the thought of her father and the monsters waiting back at the hall. The shotgun felt heavy and good. She was going to kill them all. Thank you. Actually, I think that scene probably has quite a lot of cortisol, but not a lot of oxytocin. It's only later in the book that I kind of like get into pulling on the heartstrings uh, a little bit and being a bit more manipulative. So I'm going to get into the first pages in just a sec. Um, I just want to introduce like a couple of concepts before we do. So like I say, the basis of Death of a Thousand Cuts, my podcast, is helping people write more, write better, and making them happier as they do so. And there's a couple of concepts that I just want to introduce you to before we dive into these um, pages that have been submitted by people who may be in the audience, by the way. So, um, you know, I'm going to be super, I'm going to be super honest about them, but this isn't a roast. I'm not going to be holding them up and going, look at these mugs. Like, it's genuinely, I'm really grateful to people who've given the work so we can have a look at it. But, um, the central struggle of all art is speaking the truth without stating the obvious. I think it's a really hard thing to write a book, to write a story, to write a line that isn't bad. Right? Because we hear so often that like art is truth, comedy is truth, all of these things. That is not actually true. Like, you, you could go out into those woods and decide you're going to be inspired and write a poem or a piece of non-fiction that says, the trees are green, 
the birds are singing, the sun is shining, it is day, right? That would all be true. That would all have like, that would all be so true and it'd be based on things you could see around you. You could say, look, I'm taking real life and I'm putting it on the page. Nobody <laughs> who wasn't related to you or maybe kissing you would pay you for that, <laughs> for that art. Nobody, because it's obvious, right? So one of the things we've got to, we struggle with when we're writing anything is how do you say something that's true but also a surprise. Now, the second thing I want to bring in that's related to the first is I want to do a little tiny thought experiment with the audience before we go into this first piece. So, if you could imagine for a moment, you can close your eyes if it helps. You're at home, and you hear a noise at the door. And you're not quite sure what it is. So you go to the door, and you open the door, and there, at your front door, is a dog in a hat. So my question, can I just say, <laughs> that's, that's it. What kind of dog is it, and what hat is it wearing? I'm thank you to, I I'm really grateful to all the people who had their eyes closed and were earnestly <laughs> going through that. Bless you. Um, can I just get a couple of people, what kind of dog did you picture and what kind of hat was it wearing? Yeah. A beagle and a beanie. Awesome. Uh, anyone else? Just shout out. A greyhound and a trilby. A Labrador and a top hat. Sorry? A poodle in a sombrero, right. Did, did, you, did you sit, when you closed your eyes, and I asked you to imagine the door opening, or when you imagine the door opening, did you, did you think, what is the, f did, you, did you spend a lot of time in thinking what is the best dog combination I could have, or did you just see a dog? You just, like, most people just see a dog, right? And you understand, there is something very different from a beagle in a beanie to a poodle in a sombrero. That is a very different image. That is a very, like I often get, when I'm doing it, a pug in a fez. Like that is just like naturally what comes to me, right? And, and, and I'm not just saying this to, I, I don't think there's any greater revelation to you. I don't think there's people all around the room clutching their heads going, whoa, we all thought of different dogs. This totally changed my mind. My point is, as a writer, it's very tempting to say, I went to the door, and I answered the door, and there was a dog in a hat. Um, except that different readers will see very different things. And this gets us into one of my favorite concepts in, in writing, which is the concept of crunchy specificity. If you are going to talk about something, especially when you're using nouns, it's good to say exactly what you mean. Don't just say, a dog in a hat came to my door. Say, a poodle in a sombrero came to... See, because a poodle in a sombrero, if it comes to the door, I start making assumptions about that poodle in a sombrero. Maybe it's culturally insensitive, and it thinks it's been funny. And you go, hey, hey, that's cultural appropriation, don't you know? Unless, of course, you are 
in, in, in which ca in case, of course, you are Mexican, in which case is absolutely fine, and I apologize, and it's me who's made the faux pas. Um, but also, maybe that poodle has been out drinking uh, at a novelty tapas bar. Maybe that poodle has been on holiday in the Algarve, or, the, uh, or has been come back from the Costa del Sol on its own. Whereas a, a beagle in a beanie seems a sort of much more level-headed character, slightly dour, perhaps, I don't know. They just seem, they have different energies, right? And this happens with everything. People will say in the, I, you know, I walked past a crowd of people. What people? What was the crowd doing? I want, I just want some, because our brains think in specifics, right? Even if you go vague, the human brain chunks it down into specifics. If I say, um, if I just say, there was a car, then you have to picture a car. You can't just have like the amorphous word car like floating through the story. And if we don't pin stuff down, then the whole story starts to feel floaty. It doesn't engage parts of our brain properly. So those are the two things I'm talking about. And that actually helps us solve the problem of how do we speak the truth without stating the obvious? Well, because there's a difference between the trees were green and I saw an elm tree, and halfway up it was the, were the dead roots of an ivy looking like the bones of some ancient fish that had lied down and died on it. I'm sorry, that was a simile that I was making up on the fly. I realized there's a couple of people looked approving. A couple of people were immediately e editing me and going, no, Tim, that is worse than saying the trees are green. Because now you're, you're just saying the trees were green, but you're being pretentious simultaneously. Right, I get it, and there are different levels, right? But what I'm saying is we can pick different tones, and we can start leading people down very different paths. So, shall we get on to, shall we look at the first, first page that somebody has submitted to me? Um, I'm going to do it anyway. I mean, I'm asking you as a kind of, like, courtesy, but unless you, like, physically remove me from the stage, I will go on to do it. Okay, so I'm going to go and bring it up now. So, um, this is one of the um, stories that was um, submitted to me uh, via my website. I put a call out for um, submissions, especially by people who might be at the uh, festival. I'm not going to specifically call out the person who wrote this, so I'm not going to pick on them. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read it out. We'll go through what works and what doesn't work. And if anyone then in the audience has any feedback or stuff they might like to add or suggest or any things you think I've missed or anything you think I've got wrong, then we can hear from you as well. OK, so I'm going to read this out in my, I tend to do a, sl a slightly fruity read, so I apologize. This is called um, Arcos. So when you, say, when you see an apostrophe like that, do you add a z on the end, or do you just like roll through? Like, do you say, would you say arcos or arcoses? No, no, no particular, okay, I'll go for arcos chronometer by Laurie. I, Geomancer Arcos, was not so uncomfortable with the idea of being late. Mustering all the grace she had left and gathering robes from around her ankles with one hand, she trotted along the high crystal-lined corridors that arced from one tower of the collegiate to another, footsteps reverberating harmoniously behind and away from her. The hour was late, the sun high in the sky, and Arcos could feel streams of sweat collect in the folds of her clothing. 
All the power of jawth at my fingertips and nothing I can do about sweaty armpits, she almost thought aloud. Arco's day so far had been excruciatingly slow. There were the usual interdepartmental battles to fight in the morning and then over breakfast, polite exchanges with fellows and professors to compare funding, to boast of breakthroughs in research, to share news of the rifts at Noinoth, to smile sexlessly at the high conjurist whom she'd been avoiding since last pine nights and, least of all, to eat. Volicks from Elementals had whispered about some worrying rumours from the north, but no fear compared with the idea of eating from the common room kitchens ever again. The rest of the morning was devoted to undergraduate instruction, which took on a special monotony in what was Arcos' 35th year of teaching young idiots. There were a finite number of times she could continue to be enthusiastic about basic elemental core management without summoning a few golems to keep things exciting. Her lunch was then cut short by Volix, showing up with a hefty and welcome carafe of wine. And then the afternoon was such a whirl of research agreements and thesis marking and more colleagues dropping by that, frankly, Arcos longed for a quick sleep under her desk. Alas, the academic world could only rest once the world's mysteries had been solved and Arcos was still unsure about where her day had gone. So now is the bit where we give some feedback. So I am desperately aware, having read that out, that I am not, <laughs> the idea is like I read out my first page and I read this out and I find some nice things to say about it, but essentially there's like a marked contrast <laughs> between the level I'm writing at and the level of a submission. So I can go, oh, there's some good things, but I still retain a level of authority. Like it's difficult when a first page is actually you know, like arguably as good, if not in some ways better than my own publication, <laughs> because now I'm in a position of like going, well, um, maybe this person should be up here. So for a start, let's look at that first line. Hi, Geomancer Arcos was not someone comfortable with the idea of being late. Now, what's interesting about that is we start off with a negation. We're told something that isn't true in this world, right? It's like starting off with like, hi, Geomancer, Arcos was not a 12-dimensional reverberating, reverberating gnome made out of plasticine. Like that would also give us as much information in getting rid of something. However, so like I think it's very easy, uh, I'm kind of taking the mickey, but I think it's, it's very easy in your writing to slip into these negations without realizing what you're doing. I think this one's successful, but often we end up saying, he didn't know where he was going. He couldn't see the door out. He didn't know where to go next. And we're just like, well, can you tell us something that is happening? Because what it encourages us to do is think of something that doesn't exist in the world, and then go, oh, by the way, that isn't that isn't happening. So I've made you think of something that isn't happening in the narrative present. And by the way, that's not, uh, we don't, just, just know that that isn't taking place. However, as you can see here, it does allow you, when you use a negation, a nice line in irony and smarm and kind of double talk, which starts to give us a pretty strong voice, right? Hi, Geomancer Argos was not someone comfortable with the idea of being late. I think anyone with a sort of their heads together will guess that that is an understatement, right? And crucially, we have introduced a named character, and not just Barry, nothing wrong with someone being called Barry, 
but I'm just saying like hydromancer Arcos. So we get our named character. We get a clear indication of genre. Hydromancer Arcos is not going to appear in gritty, scandy, noir crime fiction, right? That, that, that is like a nod. We're, we're going, this is just like a little courtesy sign over the door that says, here be dragons, potentially. Here be wizards. Do you like fantasy? It's, the good stuff is through here. Come into my... And it kind of like just invites you in. So, and if you hate fantasy, you can't complain you weren't warned, right? Like, if you read High Geomancer Arcos, that is like... It's, it's a good heads up, right? Hydromant Antarchus was not so uncomfortable with the idea of being late. And there's a conflict! There's a character conflict! We're one sentence in, and we know that this character has issues about being late. They're a bit uptight. They're a bit of a stick in the mud. They've got a stick up their ass. They're like, Hi, she is a bit of a fuddy-duddy, a bit difficult. That's great! We, like one, how many words? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Twelve words, and we have a character, we have a genre, we have a conflict, and we know, it, we know that this is going to be something. This aspect of the character is going to follow us through the entire book. That this inability to, this um, simultaneous dependency on and loathing for routine is going to be challenged again and again. And if it doesn't, we've been made an implicit promise in that first sentence that it's going to happen. And as readers, we will feel cheesed off, right? If, like, Hygiomancer Argos, like, dies on page 15 and nothing happens uh, since then, or just, or the whole thing takes, is a series of lists of sort of staffing problems, and campus politics, and at no point does the, does the story move on from there. We might really, re like reasonably go, I, I thought, like, you need to, at some point, the story needs to move forward and test the character. Actually, one of the great things that Will Storr, who wrote the Science of Storytelling, talks about is this idea of a character having a sort of tragic flaw or something that they hold on to. And what you need is you need the character to be moved forward by events, or if they're not going to move forward, have events move into them. That mean that way of thinking is no longer appropriate. They need to have some heuristic, some paradigm that makes them go, oh my god, I, this isn't going to work. You know, I'll give you like an example from like sitcom. Basil Fulty as a character, right, is too angry. He is inappropriately angry all the time. His character would be destroyed if in sort of the second episode he went up to his wife and went, you know what, Sybil, um, I like, you know, ha building this hotel together was always like a dream. I thought it was a chance for us to be together at work um, and, and, and kind of make something together and kind of have this like expanded family because I know we don't have children and uh, it just felt like this would be our family but it's somewhere along the way I got lost and the stress of the day to day and I feel like we need to talk because I, I love you and I'm just, I feel like there would be no comedy anymore, right? The character would be destroyed. He would have been taking like appropriate action to deal with the situation he faces. So we need characters who are going to be pushed out of their comfort zone in ways that 
bring their way of make the, their way of seeing the world unsustainable, and then either they change. Either something in them goes, my spectacles for seeing the world are not adequate, they're not right, I'm I'm not seeing people how they actually are, and they change, and we grow with them, and that's exciting, and there's movement, and there's dynamism, or they refuse to change, in which case what we're reading is a tragedy, and we see a character cling on and on and on, and it's terrifying as we see the world around them collapse. If they're not tested then it's just a kind of rather smug and boring story about them just kind of idling through their normal life. So what I'm saying is, and and you may be thinking, Tim, that's a lot to read into a first line. I'm saying this is a great first line. And I am like a really picky, mean, finickety asshole when it comes to stories, right? I promise you, I would anyone who's listened to the podcast, I'm so rude about people's stuff. I love their stuff, right? I love it. But I'm not going to hold back and say this is good if it's not. I think that, you may disagree, and I'll give you an opportunity to feedback in a minute. I think that is an awesome first line. Mustering all the grace she had left and gathering robes from around her ankles with one hand, she trotted along the high crystal-lined corridors that arced from one tower of the collegiate to another, footsteps reverberating harmoniously behind and away from her. So the cadence of that sentence, the music of that sentence, I think is spot on. That tone... That tone, I'm telling you now, is horribly difficult to pull off. And I see so many authors stack it, trying to do the high, high voice, trying to do what I would call like a, a mock heroic voice, using the kind of like flowery language of um, a kind of uh, an 18th, late 18th century novel to describe something slightly humiliating, slightly down to earth, slightly mundane. It's easy to do that badly. The only, li- only word I might take issue with in that, mustering all the grace she had left and gathering robes. And notice how the sentence order, the syntax, reflects the order that the actions happen in. Mustering all the grace she had left, internal, and gathering robes from around her ankles with one hand. So she has the emotional thing, then she does the physical thing afterwards. She trotted along. So my only issue is the word trotted. It just has, it's a slightly poor sign in uh, tone. Maybe she's wearing high heels. Maybe that's what it's meant to convey. But I just feel like if she's mustering grace, gathering up her robes, I, I feel like she might be moving as sort of something slightly more fluid than uh, a trot. It just has, it has slight, uh, it feels to me it has slight uh, connotations of diarrhea. That's my one diarrhea joke that I, it's mand- union mandated. I've got to get into the set and then I'm not going to mention it again. Um, but then, and then she trotted along the high crystal lined uh, corridors that arc from one tower of the collegiate to another. So think about this from a filmic perspective. We've gone internal pan out to external, picking something up, and then sweeping, panning shot, to suddenly, oh my gosh, two towers and this great arcing bridge between them. That is good sentence order, my friends. Footsteps reverberating harmoniously behind and away from her. So we've then had this contrast that the sentence, sentence does, balancing this kind of like feeling of like, I've got to get my stuff together, and the kind of sound that she makes, this is a place of harmony, right? Great sentence and great sentence order. 
The hour was late, the sun high in the sky. So again, great parallel sentence construction there. And Arcos could feel streams of sweat. I think we can all sympathize with her at this point. There's like an empathy moment with us and the character. Um, collect in the folds of her clothing. Here's an issue. Folds of her clothing. Clothing is such a dull way to end a sentence. Such a dull way. It's dull as ditch water, dull as balls. In the folds of her clothing, we've just been like we've just been spanning crystal towers. We've had robes. We've had she's not we're not even told that she's a, a wizard. She's a high geomancer. Geomancy is a specific field. I had a geomancer on the podcast but a month ago. Like this is someone who's done their research. So why would we come down to the boring general noun clothing? Oh, clothing. It's what? What's clothing? Picture some. Picture clothing. You can't. Right? You can't. It's just a. Right? It's just a smudge. Clothing isn't a thing. People don't wear clothing. I remember. <laughs> I remember. I still remember from secondary school when we were asked in our um, in our in, in, in our uh, form group um, what people spent their money on, and somebody answered uh, generally body wear, and the teacher was like. Do you mean clothes? <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, oh yeah, there's a word for clothes that isn't body wear. But you might as well end it. Your streams of sweat collect in the folds of her body wear. Like it's not, like folds of, like they're robes, right? And I get it, right? There's this desperate operation as writers. Like we, we feel that it's a rule, don't repeat a word. Don't repeat a word. If you repeat a word, there'll be this like crackle of thunder and... J.K. Rowling or Stephen King or whoever you think is a good writer will appear in like a puff of sulfurous smoke behind you, grab your shoulder and go, no! Who do you think you are trying to write? You've used the same word twice. You are, and then they like take your author card off you and rip it up. That's not true. You can repeat words. Repeating words has a, has a song to it. It, it, it. It's like all the epics, all the bold ancient epics repeat words. Repeating words has, I'm repeating the word repeating, and it's, it has a kind of like uh, hypnotic uh, or soporific effect, but it, it, there's a rhetorical power to it. Clothing has no rhetorical power. Never, ever, and I'll say this, this is not even a norm, this is a stone-cold rule, never finish the first paragraph of your novel with the word clothing. It's boring. So it could be anything here. It could say the, the folds of her robes, her gown, her whatever. I'm not a clothing expert, but this is why I have the di a dictionary, I have the encyclopedia of fashion on my desk, so I can look up clothes, and I can find out stuff, and I can find out the names of them. Don't say clothing. All the power of jorth at my fingertips, and nothing I can do about sweaty armpits, she almost thought aloud. Right, so I know that that sentence is supposed to be slightly, co it's supposed to be comical, I'm not sure how I feel about Jorth as a deity stroke magical thing. It sounds... So, like, this early in the story, um, this is like a little fire that we've got some kindling on, 
and we're trying to get up to the heat of the reader being invested enough in it, you've expended enough cortisol, expended enough oxytocin, that we can just throw anything at you and just say, and then a giant sentient bottom appeared and said, hello, my name's Dave, and you're so in the story, you go, yep, that's Dave the giant bum is here. I love Dave, because I, I believe in this world. You know, like when we read, uh, when we read, when you may have read like uh, 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 Metamorphosis, right, where it opens, with Gregor Samsa waking up and he's a giant beetle. But then like Franz Kafka spends a little bit of time describing a painting on the wall of like a woman with like a fur muffler. And that's got, it doesn't come back. It, what, that, the painting didn't do it. The painting isn't like used as a murder weapon later. It's just mentioned. But the point is, there's this moment of just describing something very boring and real. And if we believe in that painting, then we're likely to believe in the giant sentient beetle. And it's the same here. This is too early for me. Like, like Jorth is like, we're like starting to build a little campfire and someone's just like chucked on a massive damp uh, like piece of lino and just puts the fire out. I'm like, Jorth, maybe when I know the world better, I maybe totally buy into Jorth. I'll be like, yeah, Jorth is totally believable deity. At the moment, I'm like, Jorth sounds like something a middle-class person sitting at their laptop would make up. I need a little bit more time before you Jorth me. Um, I like the nothing I can do about sweaty armpits. I like the fact that we're getting a sense of this character. I'm liking the fact that she's being humanized. I do not like the final bit of this line, she almost thought aloud. It's like, but she didn't, so why are you telling us? And I get it, right? You're coming in after the fact to go, she nearly said it out loud. One, nobody walking across the bridge goes, all the power of Jorth at my fingertips. Nobody said, nobody said, not even in your fantasy world, nobody walking across a bridge goes, all the power of Jorth at no, no, no living person. I, I, in fact, I believe that Jorth would strike you down if you attempted to utter that sentence, right? So well, that's just nonsense. What that is, is somebody going, I watch some TV sometimes, and I want to slightly cleave to the conventions of TV where somebody might say something out loud for the benefit of the audience because we can't hear thoughts when we're watching stage and screen. No, just, just write. Look, all you do is go, all the power of Jorth at my fingertips, and nothing I can do about sweaty armpits, full stop. No one's going to go, this is odd. Why is the author suddenly in this moment of candor telling us about their... Sweaty armpits. We understand it's the character. Third person, limited stream of consciousness. It's been around since the dawn of modernism. It's fine. Readers will follow you. Don't come in afterwards and go, by the way, she didn't think it, but she almost did. It's just like, it's also teasing us, right? At least if she was going to say something like that, have the character say it out loud and other people react. Don't tease us with stuff that didn't happen. It's like, oh, I fall off the bridge. She almost did, but didn't. It's like, well, didn't, it didn't happen. Don't include it in the story. Don't, that's, it's more interesting if she says it than don't. So don't tease us with it. Is it Everybody die with my AK-47. She almost did, but decided not to because she didn't have a gun. Like that, that's the, what we're doing here. Anyway, of course, this day so far have been excruciatingly slow. Great. At this point, you've got maybe a sentence to tell us about the excruciatingly slow day because, guess what? It is not an exciting bit for a reader to go, do you want to um, hear about a uh, dull day? 
in, in the faculty on campus. Come this way, my friend. I know you're not really invested in the character yet. I know you don't really know anything about the world. But let's come through the faculty door and find out what a routine day is like. Like, story is the moment where routine breaks. I get the purpose of this first page, and it's a great purpose, is to lay it on pretty thick that life in the campus is stultifying and boring and probably beneath the powers of this incredible maid. She's, she's like um, Indiana Jones, right? He, he's, he, where we see him on campus and he's going, look at all these things that I plundered from their original owners. I stole from all over the world and now I have to teach you uh, a lecture, not very good lecture with very little intellectual rigor, right? There's all this stuff, right? And there's this moment where, but, but, we, but we can see that Indy is bored when he does it. Same thing here, but you don't have to labor it. I would say, like, by the time we get to the end of the Cameroon kitchens, I, I, I'm like, I've had enough. I want, I want the person to come through the door with a gun. I don't need, you don't need to finish off the day. Just cut to the next thing, something. Um, I think it was Colin Dexter when talking about how he like came up with the ideas for like episodes of uh, for like Inspector Morse books, who said the way he comes up with plots is think of an everyday thing and think of a way that it can go wrong. We don't need too much of the everyday thing happening before we see it go wrong. Give us the person coming in. However, some of the phrasing in this is beautiful. I love the. Um, the rifts at Norinot, so we know that something's going on in the background, right? There's a bigger world out here. There may be uh, armies approaching. I love this thing. Um, yeah, worrying rumors from the north, right? We know, hopefully, this is going to be what the plot's going to be about. And not, although I love campus novels, right? It would be, I'd love to read a campus novel about a mage. Um, I really like the to smile sexless, sexlessly at the high hundredist whom she'd been avoiding. So, okay, so there's also like, been a little bit of hanky-panky going on as well. And I felt immediately like this character is a bit sort of stuffed shirt and bored, but also, you know, has a personality and gets around and has some snogging and stuff, and that's cool. So I really liked that, and it made me more engaged in the character. But when we get, alas, the academic world could only rest once the world's mysteries had been solved and Arcos was still unsure about where her day had gone. It's just like... This is the first page of your book. And I get it, you're kind of going, oh, hum. But you've already done that, and this is, all, this is kind of like gilding the lily. This is, as they say in Chinese, painting legs on the snake. We don't need this extra stuff saying, by the way, in case you didn't realize, like, I'm unsure where the re rest of the day has gone as well. I'm unsure why you're telling me about it. And it's now I sound I'm being, like I'm being harsh. I am being harsh, and the reason I'm being harsh is because I think overall, this is a really cool first page. I would continue reading this book. It sounds badass. I care about the characters. I, I think the author has got a huge facility with words. I really like it. So we've got to make it better, though, because a lot of readers um, might get to this bit and start flagging. And it doesn't matter. They would still keep reading. I don't think it's boring enough that someone would stop if you bought it. But you don't want the standard to be, would I quit, would I quit reading it? It's like, do I have to turn the page? If like a bat swooped down and stole this book from me as I was reading it, would I dive after the window, after the bat, swing in an umbrella trying to hook it down to get my book back, tears streaming down my face, my braying, give it back, I must know what happened next. I mean, probably not because there's more than one copy of a book in the world, but, um, and I'm not sure any bat 
in the world has got... Anyway, so my point is, you've got to hold your writing to a higher standard. I think this is a fantastic first page. Um, I just want to check before we do the second thing, and then I'll be done, because I realize my time's uh, coming up. Does anybody have... And it's fine if you don't, but does anybody, is there anything I've missed out? Anything you disagreed with that's making you really angry? Um, anything anyone wants to sort of, anything that, yes, please, yeah. So just to summarize that for people, um, you said there's lots of very long sentences, and you could hear that a little bit when I was reading it out, that maybe some of the sentences go on a little bit breathlessly, and that we could do with a few more pauses to let us take it in. I think that's certainly true that um, varying the sentence length now, there's a real boldness to simplicity. Um, uh, uh, Ursula Le Guin did a fantastic ep essay on it and talking about, as I was sort of saying, that the um, epics all use bold, simple language, lots of one-syllable words. These, these things that we think of as being these kind of like fantasy, epic fantasy, actually the ancient, sort of like the old texts are like often very simple words and they have like a, a power to them. However, I think if you're writing a kind of like pastiche and a comedy of manners, then sometimes having these long sentences can be really effective. My feeling was that this is kind of like nodding to us. It's like, do you like, do you like Jane Austen? Do you like those sentences that start off one way and then jackknife on you and undo themselves halfway through? And I feel like this is difficult to pull off. I kind of feel like the author's getting away with it. But I do agree with you that um, having a couple of like just blunt declarative sentences in there would certainly be a way of grounding people. And also a very funny. In the middle of doing something very flowery, it's like, how Geomancer Arcos was not someone comfortable with the idea of being late. She was late. You could put that in, that's funny, right? I'm not trying to write it for them, but what I'm saying is you couldn't, you, you're absolutely right. A couple of blunt ones like that can really let the le reader get on board and have just a good comic punch. Let's go on to the second bit now. I don't know why I made that noise. I think I'm just feeling excited. Okay, so we're going to do this and uh, then we'll uh, wrap up. This is called The 10,000 Gods of... Uh, Aina Cordozo by Ben. I should say I'm really annoyed that the people who submitted have submitted good things. I like having like quite bad ones so I can rip into them and we can have a learning experience. I'm frustrated and feel slightly shown up that both of these pages, I think I wouldn't, I think you could make a reasonable argument that they are as good at as, if not better than my first pages. Um, the 10,000 Gods of um, Aina Cordozo by Ben. When Aina saw the rock, she knew immediately she had found the dwelling place of a god. It would have been easy to miss. Most people would have probably walked by without giving it a second glance. But Aina's practiced eye saw how it rose sharp from the stream, where the other nearby stones were rounded by time and weather, and how speckled fish gathered at its base. She pointed it out to Nuck, who chirruped non-committedly and coiled his long tail around himself, settling into the crook of her neck. Not interested, I see, muttered Aina. Well, suit yourself, mister. She found a spot on the riverbank where she had a clear view of the rock. She took off her shoes and dangled her toes into the ice-cold stream, enjoying the momentary numbness that washed over her feet. 
Shafts of bright summer sunlight filtered down through the pines. A knock echoed out and stopped as the curious woodpecker regarded her bright-eyed from, from high on a trunk. Aina dug in her pack and pulled out her notebook. She'd made it herself from pieces of parchment she could salvage and already filled most of it with detailed notes. Compared to her other notebook, this was fat and messy. The other one, sleek and well-kept, wouldn't come out unless she found what she was looking for. River, rock, moss, she muttered as she thumbed through the pages, cross-referencing complex tables filled with piecemeal information. Her finger stopped, and she groaned. Music. So, I think that the first line in this, when Amos saw the rock, she knew immediately she'd found the dwelling place of a god, is a good line. I think that the word god is an interesting word to finish a first sentence on. Um, I think that's not what we're expecting when we say, when Ana saw the rock. We'd... But look, second, second sent, uh, word introduces a named main character. She knew immediately she had found the dwelling place of a god. And it's not exactly a conflict, but it is a thing. It is an exciting thing. Now, I feel like, and a lot of stories you'll see will do this, that over the course of the rest of this section, it kind of walk, walks back the God bit, where we're starting to go like, well, like just, it's kind of a God, but it's not, I mean, it's not really a God God as you probably, you'd understand it, so it's not quite as, a, I, I kind of oversold the first line when I say it was a God. It's kind of like, it's complex. It's in this book full of piecemeal information, but understand it's very... I, and I think you can get away with that maybe once or twice in a story before readers. It's like a cat, what they call like a cat scare in horror movies. You know where like they're going, they're creeping through the house and they go, ah! And like a door swings and then it turns out it's just a cat. You can get away with that once or twice before people start going, well, it's probably just a cat again. So I think it's an, I, I like it as a first line, but we've always got to be careful with those that we don't overdo them. Because they feel a little bit like we're taking the mickey out of the reader. It would have been easy to miss. Most people would have probably walked by without giving it a second glance, right? So first thing I'm going to say, most people would have probably walked by. Cut probably, it's a filler word. No, no one is going to, you know, the, the, the god of um, writing isn't going to appear to you and go, most people, you've already said most people would have walked by. You don't need to then qualify again with probably. That's, that's too, too, when you're writing, don't write as if you're constructing a something for a lawyer, right? Like, nobody is going to come up and say, most, are you sure most people, Ben? Are you sure most, most people, they're not noticing. You, go, you can't then point to it and go, most people, probably, it does say. I'm not saying I know. Commit, commit, commit. It doesn't matter. You'll be fine. And, and, and it's your book, right? You tell people what the reality is. Step in and say, most people would have. You've already qualified with most. Sorry, I know I'm getting heated, but it's important. Because um, then because most people would have walked by without giving it a second glance. Fine. In fact, you don't even need second. Most people would have walked by without giving it a glance. Most people don't glance at rocks. So just say a glance, right? And the qu whole sentence goes quicker. But Amy's practiced eyes saw how it rose sharp from the stream. Love the cadence of that sentence. Where, other, where the other nearby stones were rounded by time and weather. Okay, pick your battles here. You don't need to say, where the other nearby stones? Where other stones? We know that they're nearby, right? Were rounded by time. And 
you, do, you don't need to say weather. Also, presumably not weather, but actually the movement of the stream. It's not like a rock's lying in a stream. Well, I think that's probably been eroded by wind, says Aina, right? No, no, it's probably the movement of the stream, I imagine, is the prime. She doesn't strike me as an expert at this stage, right? She's like, oh, well, I think that's probably erosion due to uh, rain. It's not, right? So I think I'm gonna, so we would just pick one, time. Time's fine. And I, but I like how we're getting a sense that she's an expert. I like how we're being invited into the specificity of this. I really like that. And how speckled fish gathered at his base. Great. I love that. I, I think that's... We don't have to be any more specific than fish, but speckled... I don't, do, do, do you see what I mean about crunchy specificity? It could just say, and fish gathered at its base. But as soon as you say speckled fish, it sounds like a particular type of fish are gathering at its base. And I don't know what that means, but I like it, and it feels more believable to me than fish. I don't, I've got no idea why that works, except our brains love specificity. She pointed it out to Nuck, love that name, who chirruped non-committally. Now, normally I would be down on a, like a ton of bricks on the adverb non-committally, except that what it tells us is that Aina can read the emotions, or believe she can read the emotions, of this creature. They have a bond. That's really important, and that word is doing a lot of heavy lifting. And coiled his long tail around himself, settling into the crook of her neck. Not interested, I see, muttered Aina. No, she didn't. Nobody would ever say that. And also, we've got that, right? We know that from non-committally. All we need her to say is, well, suit yourself, mister. Because that not interested, I see, is for our benefit as readers, right? She, you don't, she wouldn't say that. And I think it's so important at this stage that every word counts. If we just have, we know he's non-committal, and then we have, well, she says, she wouldn't even say well. She'd just shrug and say, he's on her shoulders, right? Shrugging is like, he feels that. Shrug, suit yourself, mister, and then she picks a spot on the riverbank. Now, I'll, I'll say about the rest, I'm kind of intrigued by this idea that she's salvaged parchment. It suggests a world where paper might... At first I thought maybe paper's scarce, but then she's got her own notebook. I'm not sure what's going on with like the reality of this world, but I'm really interested in it. I think maybe we need like less of this sketching. I particularly wasn't that into um, complex tables filled with piecemeal information. It's like she's saying, I've done a really crap job of this. Like, I don't think she sees her own information gathering as piecemeal. I think she sees it as fastidious and complex and nuanced. So I think that's really important. Overall, I'm quite interested in this, but I need there to be something more in her way. I feel like we're, again, like at the first one, we're still in a habitual time. I need this rock to be in somewhere more dangerous. I need something to go wrong. I need there to be some time pressure on her. I'm not saying everything has to be like the T-1000 chasing down the Terminator and John Connor in like a massive lorry, but things have, something has to be at stake. There's no emotional stakes here. She's just going do 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 and we're supposed to like be interested because we're like, what's going on in this world? I want just a little more like, mm, why, what are the stakes here? That's what I feel this needs. Did anybody else have any other thoughts about this first page or stuff I've missed out or anything like that um, that they wanted to add? Anything that I've said that's made you feel furious? Fantastic. I'm so glad. Um, thank you to the people who su submitted stuff today. And um, thank you to all of you for being so like ludicrously patient while I talk about adverbs and, uh, and, uh, and neurotransmitters to you about story. Like I'm having a lovely time because I'm a nerd and I love stories. Um, I hope you have a lovely festival. Um, one thing I just want to say to you is like,
if any of you write or think you might write, is that you can do it and when you practice it will go better than you think and all you have to do is a little bit a day and it will slowly come together and I, I, be I believe in you, I believe in you basically. It's tricky but um, it's inherently dignified and it's inherently worthwhile and I wish you all the best with your writing. Um, I'm going to be over there in the bookshop now signing copies of my book The Honours um, and the sequel The Ice House. They're fantasy adventures about a a uh, girl with a shotgun, and there are monsters, and there are battle nuns, if you like that kind of thing. And, um, yeah, if you'd like to say hello, they've only got five copies of each, so, um, you know, move quickly if you'd like one. And I'm going to be on at the listening post at 7.30, chatting with, recording another podcast, and chatting with Kerry Hudson, if you'd like to come and hear us talk about writing and stories and all that jazz. Thank you very much, everyone. I've been Tim Clare.